<clears throat> so I asked this question at first service, and I want to ask it of you. How many of you have been dealing with just a whole range of feelings around this election? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even need to ask you to do more than raise your hands, right? You just volunteered, yeah. And, um, you know, I had the privilege of being invited to participate in a global prayer session on Saturday. Um, this invitation came as a result of my connection now, our connection now, with the um, Peace Coalition in Japan and the Mount Fuji Sanctuary. Anyway, for the last six months, there has been a global effort for concentrated prayer support all around the world for our election. And I was asked to hold the space and prayer consciousness for our time zone here in California. And it was a very moving experience to be with people from all over the world whose intention is a peaceful, prayerful election. And then I had also reached out to Silent Unity. Silent Unity is Unity's worldwide prayer ministry that has had nonstop, 24-7 free prayer support for about 125 years. The very first job I held while I was in ministerial school was I was one of the prayer partners in Silent Unity's prayer ministry. And so I reached out to them and I said, you know, what are we as a unity movement holding in prayer around this election? And so I want to read to you the prayer affirmation that unity is holding. And regardless of where you are, I'm sure that in our congregation, we have people who will be voting differently on Tuesday. What I do believe is that each and every one of us will be voting from the highest and best awareness within our minds and within our hearts. I also believe that each and every one of us do care about life for ourselves, our family, and our extended family. We may simply have very different thoughts about who can lead us better or best to that direction. What I also know is if our spiritual practice and faith is worth anything, and I believe that it is, then these are the times that are really going to test us. Because no matter who gets elected on Tuesday, we have a lot of healing to do in our country. I know you know that. And we as people who are committed to a loving and awakened and conscious way of being in relationship really are going to be invited to put that to the deepest test. So some of us may be celebrating on Wednesday morning, and some of us may be in deep prayer on Wednesday morning. I want to say we should all be in deep prayer on Wednesday morning. So, so good people care about these issues from very different points of view. This is the prayers that, some of the prayers that uh, Silent Unity are using, is using. God is guiding us to elect a leader who brings light to the world and encourages unity and cooperation. We affirm guidance for all voters, knowing that each person exercises a precious privilege courageously and wisely. Divine order governs the election process and it is fair and peaceful. We pray all candidates are being called to the highest purpose, to serve our nation with integrity, wisdom, and commitment. We affirm wisdom and foresight for our nation's leaders 
as they resolve challenges and move our country into an era of prosperity and well-being for all people. We'll go ahead and post those prayers from Silent Unity on, uh, this, on our Facebook pages if you care to join in prayer around that. And please do not let this be a time to sit out and not vote. Your vote, whatever your vote is going to be, is important on so many different levels. So it's my prayer that everybody in our community will be out and will be voting if you haven't already done so. Okay? All right. So we're going to move into prayer together this morning, as we always do. Do take just a moment to make sure that your cell phones are turned off so they don't interrupt you at an inappropriate time. We'll be practicing mindfulness throughout our meditation segment, being aware of each breath as we take it into the body and being aware of each breath as we let it go. We'll be practicing a little bit of the heart math lock-in technique, and I'll guide you through that. And I think we'll focus on the energy of peace for ourselves and for all others. And then we'll also spend a little bit of time together in complete silence, deepening into and holding that energy as well. So I invite you now to go ahead and find a comfortable position in your chair. If you need to scoot around a little bit to, to find that position, feel free to do so. And either sit cross-legged in your chair if you want to, or sit with your back nice and straight and your feet flat on the floor. And go ahead and close your eyes. And turn your attention within, allowing your attention to rest on the breath. Noticing the breath without judging it. And continue to keep your attention on the breath throughout our practice time together. As we prepare for the blessing of our chant, let us do the three cleansing breaths taught by the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh. The first out-breath is the practice of the feeling of letting go. The second out-breath is a practice of the state of being right here. And the third out-breath is a practice of opening up. So go ahead and take a nice, deep, and steady breath in. And as you let that breath go, allow yourself to let go. And another deep and conscious breath in. And as you let that breath go, practice the feeling of being right here. And a third conscious breath in. And as you let that breath go, practice the feeling of opening up. And so continue to breathe throughout the meditation time in a very conscious and mindful way. 
gentle, steady awareness, allowing the body to relax, the mind to become more still, and the heart to open wide.
enjoying the room becoming more quiet and still. We continue to follow each mindful breath as we slip more deeply into a centered state of consciousness. Aware of each breath as we take it into the body temple. Aware of each breath as we let it go. Mind becoming more quiet and still. Body peaceful and relaxed. Heart open and receptive. Gently direct your attention to the area of the heart, the center of your chest. Imagining each breath moving in and through the heart space. Peaceful and quiet. And while in this centered state, open yourself to a greater experience of the presence of God within and all around you. Presence of God within and all around you. Continuing to be aware of each mindful breath. Continuing to have a heart-focused attention. For the next several minutes, practice embodying the quality of peace. Your whole being filled with this experience of peace. And this quality of peace radiating out from you in all directions. May peace prevail everywhere. May peace prevail everywhere. May peace prevail everywhere. For the next few minutes, sit in this embodiment of peace, broadcasting in silence these words, may peace prevail everywhere.
aware of the music filling the room once again, begin to bring your awareness back to the surface, preparing yourself to bring your time of meditation and practice to a close. But before doing so, feeling a heart filled with gratitude for being together in this time and in this place to support and love and encourage one another. And then go ahead and take a nice deep breath in and out. And when you feel ready, go ahead and open your eyes and we simply say, Namaste. Namaste. And so it is. Amen. To me, unity is a living faith. To me, unity is a practical faith. To me, unity is a deeply spiritual faith. It is something that has sustained me since the mid-1970s when I entered into my very first Unity Church. It has allowed me to learn and to grow and to expand and to, to create a life that I feel I am very blessed to live. And it is always my prayer when I sit on a Tuesday morning and write out my notes for not the upcoming Sunday, because I prepare my messages many months in advance, but nonetheless, every Tuesday when I sit and I begin to prepare my notes for what I want to share, no matter what the words are beneath all those words, is the desire is always the same. And that is to do one of two things, or maybe both things, and that is to teach and to heal. To teach and to heal. Today we are continuing in an exploration of some very basic spiritual principles and practices, many of which are contained in a book we've been using um, as part of our basis, a book written by Unity Minister Edwin Gaines, The Four Spiritual Laws of Prosperity, A Simple Guide to Unlimited Abundance a guide to living life in a richer and fuller way on all levels. Certainly, materiality is one very, very small manifestation of an abundant life. We've looked at the principle and the practice of tithing and the idea behind the law of reciprocity. We've looked at the importance of aligning with our divine purpose, recognizing that each and every one of us is, in fact, a spark of the divine, a child of the infinite, a child of God, and that we share that in common, and yet what is unique for each of us is the path that we are to take and how we express that and the people that we serve as a result of that. We've examined the practice of releasing and letting go, creating space, creating openness. We've looked at a practice that's found in all the world's spiritual traditions and religions, the practice of forgiveness, and how that is not about condoning harmful behavior. It's not about letting the other person off the hook as much as it is about letting ourselves off the hook and freeing ourselves of toxicity and um, crippling emotions. And the last week we looked at faith. What is faith and how do we deepen into the experience of faith? Today we're looking specifically at the idea of naming and claiming our good, of having the courage to go out and do it anyway, whatever it might be for you, whatever that longing of your heart is, <clears throat> whatever dream or goal you feel you are really here 
to, to fulfill? What's involved in that? How, how do you make sure that you increase your chances, your likelihood to be successful? So pulling in part from the book and, and beyond the book, I want to share four, five pieces of naming and claiming our good. We're going to begin with the obvious and very simple, and it is this, that we must get clear about what it is that we want. We've got to get clear about what it is that we want. Too many people have greater clarity around what they don't want in their life than around what they do want. They can tell you what they don't want in a life partner. They can tell you what they don't want in work. They can tell you what they don't want for the world at large. It seems as if we spend more time and more thought describing what we don't want than deep reflective thought being able to clearly identify what we do want and to make that as real in, with our words and with our vision as we possibly can. I was thinking about how ridiculous it would be to go into your favorite restaurant and when the waiter comes up to you and asks you for your order, you say, well, I don't want pizza. <laughs> and I don't want cocova. And I don't want lasagna. And I don't want tacos. And I really don't want the special of the day. <laughs> Fine, the waiter would say. I won't bring you any of those, but you haven't told me what you do want. Right? We wouldn't think of doing that. And yet, with the way that we show up in life sometimes, we do that very thing, far clearer on what we don't want. And if you think about it, the reason, one of the reasons I think we're clear about what we don't want is usually we define what we don't want in response to where we've been hurt or let down. Right? And so we go, yeah, I don't ever want that again. And we're real clear on that. I want to challenge us to switch that up a whole lot and to get really clear on what it is that we do want. I like this example that Edwin gave in the book. And if you've been reading along, Edwin is an author that the, the way that she writes, you really get to experience her as a person. She's like that in person, but even more so in person. She has quite a sense of humor, a larger-than-life um, charismatic energy about her. She was writing about a challenge that she was having and going to God with that challenge. And this is how she writes it. God, God, I'm your lady. Just tell me what you want me to do. God replied to her, Edwin, Edwin, I'm your God. Just tell me what you want me to do. <laughs> right? Right? We, we can relate, can't we? We can relate. So we have to be clear. What is it that we really want? And then I like how she also says, and besides being clear on what we do want, that we have to not be guilty for what it is that we want. Now that, other than at Ween, I, I'm not sure I ever came across another person or author challenging me in that way. Don't feel guilty about what it is that you want. I'm reminded of a quote from Charles Fillmore, co-founder of our Unity Movement. He wrote, desire is the onward impulse of the ever-evolving soul. Take that in for a moment. Desire is the onward impulse of the ever-evolving soul. I see some of you nodding your head. Desire, the thing that we want, the word desire comes from of the Father. What I think he's suggesting about desire and why we want to drop 
any guilt around it, if we have guilt around it, is that desire is that spark of God tapping us in the heart space, saying, here is something good and beautiful for you to step into in your life. And what God knows is that in order for you to step into that something more beautiful, that goal, that dream, in order for you to step into that, there is going to be, the desire is the onward impulse, but you're going to have to evolve to achieve that. And one of the fundamental concepts that we hold in metaphysics is that we are each here to continue to grow and evolve spiritually. And so perhaps in ways that nothing else can, the desires of our heart are a mechanism whereby we grow. When we, years ago, were trying to purchase this building, Edwin Gaines was a guest speaker on a Sunday morning and did a workshop for us. And we must have been smack in the middle of our fundraising efforts because I remember sitting and talking to Edwin a little bit about some of the challenges around that, about building a church, and that I had no blueprint. I'd not done this before. I didn't know how to do it. And she looked at me, and she leaned back in her chair and let out this huge laugh. And I thought, I'm struggling here, and you're laughing. <clears throat> this doesn't feel right. <clears throat> but she let out this huge laugh. And she said, Wendy, you think you're building a church. You're not building a church. You're building you. And at first, I was really mad at her. And, and I have since learned when my first internal reaction is to be mad at what somebody is saying to me, it's really a deeper invitation that I'd better take a look at what's behind that anger because there's probably some great wisdom in what I've just been told. And you know what? She was right. Yeah, the outer manifestation was we did build a church together. However, what was perhaps even more important, certainly very personal, was the growth that I had to go through, not always pleasant, not always easy, for that to come about. So getting clear on what it is that you want, what the desire of your heart is, and not feeling guilty about it, letting it live in you, honoring it, and taking it out of the dust, if you will, and looking at it. The second idea I don't have to spend a lot of time on, but I do need to at least express it. And the second idea is that we've got to write these things down, and we've got to refer to them frequently. So whatever it is that's burning in your heart, that is your true desire, your true dream, your true goal, love yourself and love God in you enough to write it down. If you can't write it down, then it isn't clear enough. Write it down with as much specificity as you possibly can. You can always leave room for a spirit to morph it into something more or something different, but be sure that you write it down and be sure that you review it. I rather think that if it had been easier for Moses to cart around scrolls and write, that he would have written down for his Israelites, for everyone who was following him, all of his description of the promised land. 
Well, it wasn't so easy for him to write it all down on scrolls, and heaven knows it probably wouldn't have been very easy to write it on stone tablets. But he made it live in people's minds and hearts. If you know the story of the Exodus, you know that one of the things that kept them going through all of their difficulty was the very vivid picture that Moses painted to them of a different life, a better life, that they would have as they left behind the one that no longer served them, the one that they had truly outgrown. So it's got to live in you in a vivid kind of way. Write it down and refer to it frequently. The third is to be willing to do the deeper inner work. It's not enough to be clear. It's not enough to drop the guilt. It's not enough to simply write it down and to refer to it frequently, but to go deep inside of yourself with an absolute rigorousness and authenticity to ask, and what in me needs to move? What in me needs to change? What in me needs to be healed? What in me needs to be learned? What in me needs to be released? What in me needs to be overcome? What in me needs to be different than it is in this moment in time? That that which I am clear about is mine to do and be can come into fruition. And then we've got to give ourselves some time in that question and some time to grow into what that change is. And to trust that as we begin to ask these questions of ourselves honestly, that we may be surprised by some of the answers that we find. That as we begin to scratch the surface and explore more deeply, who do I need to be? How do I need to be? We may come up with some very core issues that it's time for us to resolve and to make peace with. So we keep asking the question, and as the answers come up, we are willing to take at least one step forward toward the fulfillment of that. Does that make sense? I was just in a counseling session with someone this, this past week who has described to me some tremendous changes wanting to happen in his life. He can feel them deeply, and to a certain extent, he can articulate them clearly. He's been extremely successful in his professional life, has a beautiful family life, but there's something more, something different he's wanting to do. And he described very vividly to me that what happens is he gets right up to the edge of what that is, and he doesn't have enough courage to step off of that edge and into the unknown, and into what he knows is his to do and be. And he says, the reason in part that I don't know, and I know this is the reason I don't know, he says to me, is because as soon as I get to that edge, I am too, I'll clean this up a bit, <laughs> darn cerebral. I am relying only on my head which has done me really well professionally, but somehow I know my head's not going to get me on the other side of that cliff. So his homework assignment, don't ever ask me to be your prayer partner or come for counseling, and I don't do very much of it anymore because I'm going to give you homework. 
And I checked up on him this morning at 5 o'clock and said, did you do it? I gave him a couple of days, and he said, well, I've done part of it, not all of it. So I'm going to keep bugging you until you do what you said you were going to do. And it was to sit with the journal and to begin to journal not from his head, but from his heart. To begin to give equal time to his soul's longing and yearning because his soul knows what needs to change. But his head is coming up with all sorts of rationalizations. Okay? Fourth, this is pure unity. And it goes older than unity as well. Watch your words. Watch your words. Say that with me. Watch your words. Watch your words. There are lots of Bible references to the importance of watching your words and the power of your words. In Job, we're told, thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. To decree is to speak with intention, to speak with authority. Thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. If we go back to Genesis, go back to the allegory of the story of creation, we're told that in the beginning, God created. God said, let there be. Powerful right there. God said that is to decree a thing. And there was a letting go, if you will, as well. God said, let there be. Can you feel into both dynamics of that? God said, let there be. There is a practice that has been a part of unity since its formation, and that is the practice of the very conscious and conscientious use of the words, I am. When Moses, I like to say God tagged Moses and said, you're it, you're the one that's going to lead the people out of, out of um, Egypt, Moses felt like he wasn't qualified to do the job. And one of many excuses that Moses gave to God when God said, tag, you're it, you're going to be the one that leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses said, but who do I say sent me? Like, in other words, what do I put on my resume? Who's going to pay any attention to me? Who do I say sent me? And the answer was, tell them that I am that I am sent you. Now, how would you like those as marching orders? You go into your next big board meeting. I am that I am sent me. That's why I'm here. What did that mean? In part, it had to do with really being aware of what we associate with at the very core of our nature. Because when we're using the words I am, they are going right to the very core of how we see ourselves to be. And this is why in metaphysics we say, really pay attention to what you attach after you say the words, I am, because you are setting yourself up to strongly identify with that. And so you want to make sure that you're strongly identifying with that which you want to have be manifested and sustained in your life. I think about, I've been helping my daughter Jennifer with some of her Spanish. And what I'm reminded of is something very wise, wiser in the Spanish language than in English. 
And that is that in many examples in Spanish, you do not say things like, I am sick, I am hungry, I am cold, I am thirsty. Think about that for a moment. Just stop for a moment. I am hungry. Is that really what I am? I am sick. I don't want that. I don't want to identify at the very core of my nature with that. In Spanish, it is said, tengo, I have hunger. I have sickness. I have. That's a very powerful but subtle difference. In that languaging, we're not identifying at the core of our nature with that condition. So we want to be very mindful. Start paying attention. Don't judge yourself because as soon as you start paying attention, if your mind and your experience is anything like the most of the rest of us, as soon as you start paying attention, you could probably be horrified at all the things that you put after the words I am that you really don't want to identify with so strongly. And so what do you do when you notice that you've put stuff behind I am that you don't want to identify? What do you do? You judge yourself and you beat yourself up, right? Are you paying attention? No, no, you just go, oh, I'm grateful that I caught myself. Because maybe up until this point, I wasn't even paying attention. I caught myself. And like anything we want to change in our lives, we first have to be clear what it is that we're trying to do differently. And as soon as we are clear on what it is that we are trying to do differently, we will then be aware of all the times we miss the boat. And if we pay attention to those times we miss the boat, eventually it will register, oh, wait a minute, there's a different choice I can make here. Oh, I can make a different choice. Until that new choice becomes as automatic as that old, lousy choice had become. Make sense? Okay, and the very last one is the idea of putting yourself out there. Putting yourself out there. All sorts of ways of saying the same thing, getting out of our comfort zone, having the courage to do it even though we feel fear, we do it anyway. We do it anyway. So my invitation and my challenge to you is to pick an area in your life where you know you need to and you want to grow. And maybe for you, what's up right now is something in a relationship. Or maybe it's in business. Maybe it's in a major life change. Doesn't matter where it is. Pick an area and try to visualize your comfort zone around that area. What, what's already comfortable for you in terms of how you act, how you think, how you decide, how you move in that particular area? And then, and then ask yourself, what is on just the other side of that imaginary comfort zone line. How can I, what would it be to step outside of that? What's one action, just one? What's one action I could take to step out of that comfort zone? Maybe it's to be seen in a way that you've never let yourself be seen before. Maybe it's to raise your voice I don't mean raise your voice as in yelling. I mean in speaking up for yourself. Your voice in a way you never have before. 
Maybe it's getting out and doing something that you've shied away from because you weren't sure you could do it really well and you didn't want to embarrass yourself or the people around you. Whatever it may be, what's one specific step you can take on the other side of that comfort zone? That is the way that we grow. When high divers, Olympic high divers, climb up that, what is it, a 30-foot is the highest size, something like that, when they climb up that ladder and get out on that diving board. Almost without exception, if you ask them, do you have any fear when you're on the edge of that diving board, they will say, yes. Yes. But the fear doesn't stop them from going off. Why? They've practiced that move thousands of times before. They've built up to that place, not by starting at the 30-foot dive, but by starting at something much lower, much more simple. That's no different than what I'm saying, we're, what I'm challenging us to do. What's right on the other side of your comfort zone that would give you that feeling of, I don't know if I can do that? Go do it anyway. Deal? Convince me. Deal? Yeah. Okay, namaste. <laughs>